Well, good morning. It's our joy to celebrate with you, Lighthouse Bible Church, on uh, 12 years of God's faithfulness in the life of this church, and truly um, just a, a great encouragement to us to meet many of you and to fellowship with Mark and Julie and the elders and just uh, just to re- rehearse God's faithfulness. And I think that is uh, the theme of what we've experienced this weekend. And I also want to bring you greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Many of you know uh, Senior Pastor Mark Dever. And just to let you know that uh, the pastoral staff has prayed for our time together and in service uh, this morning. Uh, They're on East Coast time. They're a little bit ahead of us. But this morning, uh, the pastors during the pastoral prayer prayed for Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose, and our Sunday together and for each of you. And, and just uh, want to bring greetings and let you know that although we're on opposite sides of the coast, that uh, we are true brothers and sisters in Christ and that there's a church on the East Coast praying for each of you. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them to the third chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14 will be our scripture reading for this morning. And I've entitled this message, Christ, Our Substitute. Christ, Our Substitute. Whenever I have the opportunity to preach God's Word, I'm especially drawn to passages of scripture which speak to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just found that you can never go wrong with preaching Christ. He is the subject who needs no introduction. He is the theme which addresses every issue and every struggle in life. Christ is the great subject which pleases God the Father and which brings the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I would be bold enough to say that no matter where you are this morning, no matter what you are struggling with, no matter what you are going through, that your great need and mine this morning is to see Christ and to behold His glory as revealed in the Scriptures. The St. Robert Murray McShane once counseled believers in this way. He said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. And that is our prayer this morning as we look at God's Word, that we see Christ and turn our eyes upon Him. So let me read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation of Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. 
Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is God's Word. John Stott has observed in his book, The Cross of Christ, that every religion and ideology has its visual symbol. The lotus flower is associated with Buddhism. Modern Judaism employs the so-called Star of David. Islam is symbolized by a crescent. And the Marxist hammer and sickle represent industry and agriculture. And Stott notes this, that Christianity is no exception. The chosen symbol is a simple cross. Christians commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, his death on a cross. The cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. We are reminded of this, are we not, every time we come to worship? At the center of our worship center this morning is not a picture of a fish, not a picture of a dove, it is a picture of a cross. Because the cross is central to all that we believe as Christians. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Have you ever stopped to think about how amazing that statement is? The cross was an instrument of execution and death. The cross signified the cursing of God in the Old Testament economy. The cross was the symbol, the emblem of sorrow and shame. And yet Paul says that the cross has become my boast. It is the grounds of my joy and my confidence as a believer in Christ. And yet you and I know as believers that this is true. That somehow this emblem of sorrow and shame and cursing and death has become our joy. And we long to linger at the foot of the cross and behold the message of Christ in Him crucified. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Oh, give me the story of the cross. Go live on Calvary, ye saints, as you linger there, your meditation on your Lord shall be sweet. This morning I would like for us to behold the wondrous cross upon which Christ has died, that we may understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In our passage, we find three essential truths which will 
explain to us the meaning of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And truth number one is the curse of the law. The curse of the law in chapter 3 verse 10. Apostle Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is writing to a group of churches, the churches of Galatia. He had founded these churches on his first missionary journey. And these churches had been infiltrated by false teachers proclaiming what Paul calls a different gospel. These false teachers who are known as the Judaizers were adding the requirement of works to the gospel of grace. They were insisting that Gentile believers be circumcised according to the Mosaic law. They were essentially saying that in order to be justified, one had to add works of the law to the gospel of grace. And Paul, in the strongest terms, says that the gospel of these false teachers is no gospel at all. He denounces their teaching in the strongest of terms in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul writes the epistle of Galatians to assert this truth that man is justified by grace alone apart from the works of the law. He writes this epistle to communicate the great and central reality of the gospel that we are justified by grace alone. That our salvation is received through faith alone. That it is solely on the basis of Christ's work alone. And that it is all to the glory of God alone. In chapter 3, Paul appeals to the patriarch Abraham to support his thesis that justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone, not by keeping the works of the law. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And he presents to the Galatian churches this great reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. In verse 10, Paul says the same thing from an opposite perspective. He says that justification is not by works of the law. Read that verse with me in verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now that phrase, all who rely on the works of the law, refers to people who want to be accepted by God on the basis of their own accomplishments. This phrase is referring to people 
who think that they can earn their salvation by keeping the works of the law. These are people who imagine that they can keep God's law, or at least they imagine they can keep enough of God's law that somehow they can earn their own righteousness And by the virtue of their own righteousness, they will be accepted by God. These are people like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who stood before God and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. These are those who say that on the basis of my own righteousness, I will make myself acceptable to God. I've met many people throughout the years that I've asked this question. Why should God let you into heaven. If you were to die today, friend, and God were, you were to stand before God, and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I heard many responses that give some version of their own morality, some variation of works that they have done, laws that they have kept. I've been a good person. I've tried to live a good life. I've raised a family. I've worked a job. I've paid my taxes. I've served the community. I've tried my best. Surely I have done enough that when that day comes, God will accept me into heaven. And what the Paul, so Paul says is the very opposite. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All those who say that God will accept me on the basis of the works that I have done are under the curse of God's law. In Romans chapter 2, Paul explains that there are Jews in the world who had received the Mosaic law, God's law in the Old Testament. He says there are Gentiles in the world who have the law written on their hearts. But for both Jew and Gentile, the principle remains the same. All, Paul says, whether you are Jew or Gentile, all who rely on the works of the law to earn their salvation, you are under the curse of God's law. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now let me just, friends, talk about the law for a moment because this is so essential for our understanding. You see, no one is justified by the works of the law because 
No one can possibly keep God's law. No one is justified by works of the law because no one can possibly keep God's law. The standard of God's law is moral perfection. The standard of God's law is perfect obedience. Paul said in Romans 3 verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law does not care about our good intentions. The law of God does not grade us on a curve. The law of God does not say to us, good try or good effort. If you read the Old Testament, there's a whole category in the Old Testament dealing with unintentional sins. You see, the law condemns you and I for doing wrong when we mean to do what's wrong, and the law of God condemns us for doing wrong even when we meant to do what is right. The law condemns our sins of attitude. The law condemns our sins of action. The law holds up this perfect, unrelenting standard. You must be perfect And if you fail at one point of the law, you're guilty of failing all of it. And you are placed under the curse of God's law. No man can possibly keep God's law. Instead, Paul says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now some people say, well, Dan, you know, that's all Old Testament stuff, right? I mean, the Old Testament was all harsh and gloom and doom and justice and wrath, but once Jesus came, it was all sunshine and light. And some people might say, you know, Dan, when you read the Old Testament, yeah, the law is very demanding, but what Jesus did when he came is he basically said, you know, all that Old Testament law stuff, let's just relax and just Forget about it. And I've come to usher in a new era where we don't have to worry about the law. Some people think that when Jesus came, he came to abolish the standards of the law. And would it surprise you to know that Jesus Christ did no such thing? In fact, what Jesus did in his earthly ministry is the very opposite. When Jesus taught in the Gospels, he reaffirmed and he reasserted the authority and the perfect standard of God's law. And he even said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. 
Would it surprise you to learn that Jesus did not relax the standard of God's law? In fact, what he did is he further explained the intention and the application of God's law in such a way that if you didn't get it by now, that you cannot keep this law. After you hear Jesus' explanation of the law, you will be even further convinced that there is no way that I can ever keep God's law. Jesus took the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And I'm sure that many of us might look at that commandment and say, well, I've kept that law. I haven't physically murdered anyone. And Jesus explains and applies the application and intention of that law. He says in Matthew 5, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes that law and he applies it to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He exposes anger. He says anger is a form of murder in the heart. And maybe you haven't physically murdered anyone, but you've had the form of murder in your heart. And we're exposed by Jesus' explanation as those who have broken God's law. Listen to what Jesus did with the seventh commandment in Matthew 5, verse 27. You shall not commit adultery. And someone might say, well, I've kept that law. I have not physically committed adultery. But Jesus explains the true intention of that law and applies it to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says, I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, friends, Jesus did not come to relax the standards of the law. In fact, if anything, Jesus took the standards of the law and he applied them to the issues of the heart in a way that none of us can deny the inescapable reality that we have violated the law of God, and that all of mankind falls under the cursing of God's law. What about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Someone might say, well, Dan, I've kept that law. I don't have idols in my house. I don't bow down to totem poles. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. Paul ties together the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And he says, if you ever even wanted something that God has not seen fit to give to you, then you have broken the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Therefore, breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And you have demonstrated that you do not love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and you've also demonstrated that you do not love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Who can keep that law? Friends, let's get serious this morning. Who can keep that law? Is it any wonder that Paul looked at the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, and he said in Romans 7, I looked at that law and I died. 
I died. There's no way. I'm condemned. I am a law breaker. Listen, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If there was any man who could have earned his own righteousness before God by keeping God's law, it would have been the apostle Paul. And yet he says, there's no way you can look at that law and say, I've kept that my whole life and I've kept that perfectly. Is the problem with the law? May it never be. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with us. The problem is with our sin. Did you know that the law doesn't care if you like it or not? The law doesn't even care if you believe in it or not. You steal a hundred thousand dollars from your company embezzle money they have all the records you stole the money you stand before the judge the judge says you have broken this law and you give this wonderful postmodern response well judge that's what the law means for you that's not what the law means for me I have my own interpretation of God's law I'm I know judge that you have your own law, and I'm glad it works for your life. What's that judge going to say to you? Probably not only give you a harsh sentence, but give you another sentence for just being annoying in the courtroom. The law doesn't care about your personal feelings, and the law doesn't even care if you think that it's fair As one commentator has said, the law of God demands perfect compliance, refuses to accept good intentions, accepts no payback plan. The law produces shame and guilt and remorse and sorrow and fear and pain and futility and hopelessness. Why such harsh language? It is for this reason, friends, The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is trying to shatter the delusion that so many are under that there are people in this life who say that they can earn their own righteousness before God. He is trying to get rid of this notion that somehow, some way you can do enough, earn enough, work enough, achieve enough that you can commend yourself to God on the basis of your own righteousness. He says all who seek to keep their keep the law and gain righteousness through the law are under a curse and he says in verse 11 now it is evident that no one is justified before the God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith and friends I say to you that we will never treasure the cross until we come to terms with the standards of God's law. We will never marvel at the love of our Savior until we understand what He has saved us from. You see, when you relax the standards of God's law, when you diminish God's law, and when you put it into a form that you say people can keep this, then you end up with a gospel which says 
that Jesus has come in order to make you feel better about your life. Jesus has come to be your life coach. Jesus has come to be a personal trainer or a motivator to help you reach your goals. But when we lift high the holy law of God, we realize that we don't, our greatest need is not a life coach or a motivator or a personal trainer. We realize that our greatest need is we need a savior. We need one to save us from the curse of God's law. So the first essential truth we see in this passage is the curse of God's law. There's a second essential truth, and that's the curse of the cross. The curse of the cross, verse 12, Paul says, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then in verse 13, he makes this glorious statement. And I love how verse 13 begins. It begins simply with Christ. Christ. Notice, no conjunction in verse 13. There's no introduction needed. You don't really need to ease him into a conversation. There's all this talk about the law and sin and cursing and death and condemnation and wrath. And then in verse 13, there's Christ. Christ. And the introduction of Christ changes everything in this passage. Paul introduces the great news of the gospel. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us. And here we have the language of redemption, the payment of a price. In this context, Paul is speaking of the price that was paid at Calvary, which was a ransom payment of infinite value. Christ shed his blood to save us from our sin. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here we find Christ presented not as the great life coach. He's presented not as the great motivator. He is presented not as the great personal trainer to help you reach your goals in life, but he is presented as the great Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this passage, Christ is presented as the great Redeemer. And in this passage, Christ is presented as the great Law Keeper. You see, friends, let me tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only man He is the only man who has ever lived who has perfectly kept the law of God. Jesus Christ was fully man and he was fully God. Full sinless humanity joined inseparably with full eternal deity. Two distinct natures in one person. And as a man he lived on this earth and he perfectly kept the holy law of God. Jesus Christ never sinned once. He never sinned unintentionally. He never sinned intentionally. He never did anything that he shouldn't have done. He never failed to do what he should have done. 
Jesus Christ never sinned in his actions. He never sinned in his attitude. Jesus Christ never failed to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus Christ never coveted. Jesus Christ never lied. And in his earthly life, Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, established a perfect record of spotless, blameless, human righteousness because he never once failed to keep the holy law of God. And therefore, and this is the important part, Jesus Christ is the only man who ever, to ever live in the history of the world who not only avoided, friends, the cursing of God's law, but earned through his perfect life the blessings of God's law. Promise to those who would perfectly obey. Jesus Christ deserved to be blessed by the law of God. If you want to sum up the gospel really simply, you can sum it up this way We are lawbreakers, and Jesus Christ is the great law keeper. Jesus Christ perfectly kept God's law on our behalf so that His righteousness could be given to us, imputed to us as a gift of grace received through faith. The language of verse 13. He became a curse for us. For us. One commentator says that the language here in verse 13 is startling, is shocking. We would not have dared to use it, yet Paul means every word of it. He became a curse for us. What does it mean that Jesus became a curse for us? Well, what it does not mean is that Jesus Christ became a sinner. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was as holy and as spotless and as righteous on the cross as he was through his entire life and ministry. What it does not mean is that Jesus was actually guilty or that he actually committed any real crimes. You see, the key to understanding what happened at the cross is bound up in that little phrase, for us. For us. This is the great language of substitution. This is the language which describes the great exchange that occurred for us at the cross of Calvary. At the cross, Jesus Christ, the great law keeper, was treated as if he had broken God's law. At the cross, Jesus Christ, though he kept God's law, took the full force of the curse of God's law. Why did he do that? The apostle Paul answers, for us. He took the condemnation and the judgment that we deserve. the cross, the great law keeper is cursed. And as a result, the great law breakers 
are blessed. The roles are reversed. The righteous stands in the place of the unrighteous. The unrighteous stands in the place of the righteous. Jesus is treated as if he has broken God's law. God now treats us as if we had kept God's law. Have you ever studied the concept of substitution in the scriptures? Just read your Bibles and as you do so, Old Testament and New Testament. Just keep your eyes open to this great and glorious theme of substitution. One standing in the place of another and you'll find it all throughout the scriptures. It is the central reality of the gospel. And it is the central meaning of the cross where Jesus Christ dies that we may live. He is condemned that we might be blessed. He is forsaken that we might be accepted. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. Though I've never kept God's law, though I properly deserve the curse of God's law, through the work of Jesus Christ, my great Redeemer, the demands of the law are completely satisfied. They are satisfied. Do you believe that for your life, dear believer in Christ? Do you believe that as you look at your life and as you stand before the law of God, do you believe that you properly and rightfully ought to be condemned And yet at the same time, do you believe that Jesus Christ has satisfied the law's demands on your behalf? And that you have received the full righteousness of Christ as a gift of grace. And you'll be saying, Dan, I know you're preaching that and I know that's for mature Christians, Christians who are doing well in their spiritual lives, but this morning my faith is weak. I'm struggling. And friend, I would say, look to Christ. Look to Christ. And realize that it is not the greatness of your faith that makes you acceptable to God. But it is the greatness of the Savior's work on your behalf that satisfies the law's demands on your behalf. This is why Paul says, That as believers in Christ, we pray with boldness. Have you ever noticed that? Paul says that we pray to God the Father that we come into His presence with boldness and with confidence. I used to struggle so much with that language because I felt I can't come into God the Father's presence with a sense of boldness. And yet, as I read the scriptures, I began to understand it's not boldness based on my walk or how good I'm doing. It's boldness based on the fact that the greatness of the sacrifice which has been offered on my behalf and because I am in Christ and Christ is in me, I have every right to come to the presence of God the Father and be bold in my prayers 
and confident that the Father will give me grace and mercy in my time of need. This is what the assurance of substitution, our understanding of substitution produces in our lives. As John Stott writes, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. In our passage, we see the curse of God's law. In our passage, we see the curse of the cross, and that leads us to our third and final truth. Verse 14, the blessing of Christ. The blessing of Christ. Paul says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The role reversal here is just astounding. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. Christ being cursed, we are those who are blessed. It reminds me of the great story of John the Baptist when Jesus came to be baptized by John and John was perplexed. He didn't understand this reversal of roles. He knew he was preaching a baptism of sinners. He knew that sinners were ones who went to the waters of baptism. He said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. I mean, the roles are reversed. I'm the sinner. You're the righteous man. You need to be baptizing me. What does it mean that I'm baptizing you? You didn't understand this reversal of roles. And yet we understand a similar sentiment when we look at the cross. Do we not say, Jesus, what are you doing there in the place of sinners? You're not a sinner. And do we not look at our lives and we say, Jesus, what am I doing here in the place of blessing when I am not righteous? That role reversal is at the heart of the gospel. Christ stands in our place. We receive his blessing. And so Paul says, verse 14, in Christ Jesus and By the way, there's no blessing outside of Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ Jesus, there is only judgment and cursing and woe and death. But Paul says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentile world. 
the blessings which were promised to the patriarch Abraham when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Christ, this great promise is fulfilled. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never believed in Him for salvation, I dare say to you, friend, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you trade in your filthy rags of works righteousness. And by grace alone, through faith alone, you receive Christ's glorious robe of perfect righteousness. Today is the day you bring your Christ, your sentence of death, your record of sin, the curse you deserve because of your law-breaking. And you trade that in for Christ's perfect life, His perfect righteousness, His perfect fulfillment of the law. And to believers in Christ, you who love Christ and you who love His Word, repeat it over and over, wake up, and say it to yourself. Walk by the way as you sit down, as you rise up in the morning, and as you lay down to sleep. Repeat it over and over for your own joy and for your own sanctification. That the demands of God's law have been satisfied in Christ. Take the truth of the scripture and put it in your heart day after day, week after week that the demands of God's law have been satisfied in Christ. And if I could say it this way, our appeal before the throne of God is not only that God is gracious and that God is loving and that God is merciful. Our appeal before the law of God is also that God is just. God will not be so unjust to punish Again, what he has already punished in Christ, God's law has received all that it could ever demand. And God will, God will not be unjust to require anything further. So we can say with the words of the great hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. J. Gresham Mason imagines the dialogue in this way. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? No, says the sinner saved by grace. I have disobeyed them. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Well then, sinner, says the law of God, if you pay the penalty which I pronounce upon disobedience, no, says the sinner, I have not paid the penalty myself, but Christ has paid it for me. Hence, so far as the penalty is concerned, I am clear. Well then, says the law of God, how about the conditions which God has pronounced upon for the attainment of blessedness? Have you stood the test? Have you merited eternal life by perfect obedience to the law of God? No, says the sinner. I have not merited eternal life by my own perfect obedience. But although I have not merited eternal life 
by any obedience of my own, Christ has merited for me by his perfect obedience. I have no righteousness of my own, but clad in Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me and received by faith alone. I can glory in the fact that there awaits me the glorious reward which Christ thus earned for me. Dear friends, how glorious is our salvation in Christ and how glorious is Christ, our great substitute. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word and we thank you for the cross. We love the gospel, the good news of salvation. We long to linger by it day by day and to behold Christ who lived and who died and who rose again on our behalf. Fill us with wonder, love, and praise at the great work that our Redeemer has accomplished on our behalf and fill us with a holy boldness, a confidence that though we are sinners, and we are lawbreakers, that Christ is the great law keeper, and that we have received his righteousness in full by faith. Help us to love Christ more and to live for him. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.